welcome to History Gems, the podcast that combines history and jewels to bring you dazzling stories from the past. I'm Dr Nicola Tallis and I'm a Tudor historian and author of three books, Crown of Blood, Elizabeth's Rival and Uncrowned Queen. Jewels often have their own unique and fascinating stories to tell and on each episode of History Gems, I'll be joined by an expert guest to bring these stories to you. It was her most cherished jewel and she kept this ring with her until the day she died and I just think it speaks volumes about her true feelings towards her mother. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known queens of England full stop. What those that that board badge and what the cannonballs and what you know the bits of coin etc have shown us I think is is precisely where the battle was fought. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. When you open it, um, this sort of white exterior gives way to gold and a little golden hen. My guest on the first ever episode of History Gems is the fabulous Dr. Tracy Borman, who's not only a prolific and hugely successful writer of both fiction and non-fiction, but is also joint chief curator of historic royal palaces. The Venetian ambassador claimed that Elizabeth had 6,000 dresses in her wardrobe. He was just desperate to get more power uh, than she was willing to give him. So he rebelled. It was one of the worst planned rebellions in history. They actually, I love this fact, they sort of stopped for lunch halfway through the rebellion. There are some frustrating gaps in our knowledge, but I suppose, you know, that's also why we keep going with it, because just that enticing prospect of discovering something. Tracy's books include Elizabeth's Women, Thomas Cromwell and a trilogy of fiction books set in the Jacobean court, the newest of which, The Fallen Angel, is out now. Hi Tracy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my huge pleasure, always lovely to chat to you Nicola. You're here today to talk about the famous Virgin Queen Elizabeth I and Mm -hmm one of her favourites, and a jewel that legend says connects the two, the so-called Essex ring. But before we come to that, let's just start by talking a little bit about Elizabeth herself. Can you give us a bit of background on Elizabeth and, you know, tell us who she was and how she came to be queen? Absolutely. Um, I'm always happy to talk about my absolute top historical heroine. Elizabeth is where my interest and love of history began when I was studying A-levels and uh, my A-level teacher put a a picture of Elizabeth up when we were studying that part of the curriculum and I have loved her ever since. So she was actually never supposed to be queen at all, even though she went on to become one of our greatest monarchs. Um, She was the younger daughter of Henry VIII. Her mother was the notorious Anne Boleyn. Now, um, Anne Boleyn's failure, of course, was to give Henry VIII the son that he so desired. So the fact that she gave birth to Elizabeth was seen um, as really a huge disappointment uh, to Henry. And, you know, if only he had known, he needn't have worried. Elizabeth would go on to be probably his most successful um, heir. But at the time, it was a disaster. Elizabeth was... um, really, as I said, not supposed to be queen. She had an elder sister, Mary, but crucially, she also had a brother, Edward, who was the son of Jane Seymour, wife number three. 
But then, of course, Edward reigned for a very short time, followed even shorter by your own particular favourite and specialism, Mm -hmm. Lady Jane Grey, and then Mary, another brief reign. So after a rather tortuous path uh, to the throne, Elizabeth became queen in 1558. And as I said, having not expected to be queen at all, she became, I think, the greatest of the Tudor monarchs. So it really was a tumultuous and uncertain path to the throne for her. I love an underdog in history and Elizabeth really was that. Um, But I think this is part of her success. The secret of her success is that she did have this tortuous path to the throne and she'd learnt a huge amount along the way, particularly from her half-sister Mary, who provided an example of really what not to do as a queen regnant. So Elizabeth was really able to capitalise on Mary's mistakes then. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it's very fair to say. I don't think Elizabeth would have been the success that she went on to be without having witnessed firsthand the disasters of Mary's reign, notably the fact that Mary chose to marry a foreigner, which was deeply controversial in an age where the English people were very xenophobic. They hated foreigners. They didn't want to be ruled by Spain. And and Mary had married um, the future king of Spain, uh, Philip II. And so uh, that created deep divisions within her kingdom, as did Mary's dogmatism with religion, her determination to return England to the Roman Catholic fold. And Elizabeth had learned a lot from these examples, mostly you know in terms of marriage do not marry a foreigner but actually probably best not to marry at all and then of course she goes on to become the famous virgin queen and it's one of her great selling points really but also just not to be too dogmatic not to stick too closely uh, to your personal principles she was a great pragmatist and i think that's what i admire most about her what about when elizabeth actually became queen in terms of the trappings of being a queen Um, Because I know that she was really super fond of luxury and super fond of clothes. She absolutely was. Now, the the Venetian ambassador claimed that Elizabeth had 6,000 dresses in her wardrobe. Now, that may have been a bit of an exaggeration, but we do know that by the time of her death, um, an an inventory was taken of of the royal wardrobe and she had 1,900 dresses. So that's... Not too shabby, really, uh, for a queen. So she loved the trappings of royalty. And I think this was one of her unique qualities because she really appreciated and invested in uh, the sort of image of monarchy. Now, that's something that her sister hadn't done really at all, but it's definitely something that her father, Henry VIII, had done. And they both had this knack of what we might call PR. um, Mm. And that was really um, one of the secrets of Elizabeth's success. So yes, she loved the finer things in life. And frankly, I don't think she did just do it for PR for the sort of political importance of of the trappings of royalty. I think she just loved bling and she loved beautiful dresses and and fine jewels and uh, couldn't get enough of them. So that's what I was going to ask you next, actually, was this love of clothes that she had. And you talked about all of these wonderful items that she had in her wardrobe at the time of her death, which is uh, a lot more than than I've got, I must say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But was this the same scenario with jewels then? Was she just as fond of jewels as she was of clothes? 
Yes, she was. She absolutely loved jewels and she particularly loved pearls. That was um, her sort of favourite jewel because of its uh, symbolic importance. Pearls symbolised purity. And of course, that was a key part of Elizabeth's uh, carefully crafted public image, her purity as the Virgin Queen, hence the sort of white face and all the uh, references she made to the Virgin Mary uh, in the context of herself. And so pearls were a real favourite with Elizabeth. But she was dripping with jewels, really, on most of her public appearances, particularly the important ones, if there was a visiting ambassador, and um, all the way up to the end of her life when she was what the Tudors considered an, an old woman in her late uh, 60s. Uh, ambassadors were literally dazzled by the number of jewels that she appeared in. Um, actually, they were some of them were rather cruel about it and quite mocking, thinking that such an old woman shouldn't be showing herself off in so many jewels. Oh. Uh, but this was definitely a personal preference for Elizabeth and I think why not really yeah absolutely and really interesting what you were saying about the fact that she loved pearls in particular and how she was able to really use them to cultivate this image of virginity everything had symbol and meaning for Elizabeth um, and that extended to her clothes as well as her her jewels there's that famous rainbow portrait which um shows Elizabeth's dress kind of decorated with eyes and ears yeah. and everybody would have understood the significance. We we can really only guess at a lot of it today, but but the Tudors were really, really big on symbolism and and that went for jewels and clothes and pretty much everything else they did in terms of public display. There are actually some surviving examples of Elizabeth's jewels, aren't there? Mm, they are. And my favourite has to be the so-called Chequers ring. Now, this ring is in the Prime Minister's country residence, Chequers. Uh, as, as often with these things, uh, items from the Royal Collection sometimes end up in some quite unusual places. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the ring is there and apparently Prime Ministers today, they, they still show off the ring as part of the extraordinary Chequers collection. Now, really? I was incredibly lucky to see it in person uh, wow. while filming um, a new series on um, Anne Boleyn and uh, it was just extraordinary. So I wrote about this ring at some length in my book, Elizabeth's Women, because uh, I think it is one of the most compelling pieces of pieces of evidence for how Elizabeth felt towards her mother Anne mm. Boleyn. Now we're told that she didn't think much of Anne Boleyn at all. She was less than three years old when Anne was executed. And it's often said that Elizabeth only mentioned her mother twice throughout the course of her, li course of her life. Well, that in itself is inaccurate, but it's fair to say she talked a lot more about her father, Henry VIII, than she did about her mother. But that was pure pragmatism, a classic Elizabethan strategy, because Elizabeth knew how controversial her mother was. She knew what a divisive figure she was. And so she didn't think it very wise or politic to publicly identify with Anne Boleyn. But in private, it's very clear just what she thought of her mother, how much she esteemed her. Well, um, before saying about the checkers jewel, there was another piece of jewellery that showed that as well. Um, in Hampton Court, uh, where I work for part of the week, um, we have an amazing uh, painting on display called The Family of Henry VIII. Uh, and in that, the 13-year-old Elizabeth wears her mother's A pendant. Now, that's a 
pretty brave thing to do when posing for a portrait with her father who wants Anne Boleyn's name not mentioned at all. Um, But the checkers ring. It's so poignant because what it was, was a, a, or is rather, is a locket ring. So it opens to reveal two portraits. One is of Elizabeth herself. The other is of her mother, Anne Boleyn. Now, it's a tiny ring. I was staggered by just how small and delicate this ring is, beautifully rendered. Um, And yet, even though it was certainly not the richest item of jewellery in Elizabeth's possession, it was her most cherished jewel. And she kept this ring with her until the day she died. And I just think it speaks volumes about her true feelings towards her mother. Absolutely. That's really touching. Isn't it? It it really is. And um, I kind of, I feel quite sad in some ways that she didn't obviously get the opportunity to get to know her mother and Mm. that this jewel um, was perhaps, even though it it wasn't owned by her mother or didn't belong to her mother, that, you know, it was one of the few reminders that Elizabeth actually had of her. Exactly. I think it's incredibly... Um, touching. I, like you, I sort of wish Elizabeth had grown up to to know Anne Boleyn more. I wish Anne had, had survived long enough for that, because from what few references exist about their uh, very early relationship, I think Anne was a really doting mother. She'd never showed any sign of being resentful towards this child who really had been her undoing. Um, If she'd been a boy, then it would have all been very different. But she doted on Elizabeth. She had a special cushion made when Elizabeth was a baby so that she could keep her next to her during court occasions. And then when Elizabeth was packed off to Hatfield at the age of three months, which was entirely uh, traditional for royal offspring, Anne would regularly send pretty clothes um, and items for her daughter so that she didn't forget her. And I just think how much more influence Anne Boleyn might have had if her life hadn't been so cruelly cut short. Yeah, absolutely. It shows a completely different side to Anne's character than the one that many people are familiar with. Um, That's such a good point because Anne Boleyn is seen as this scarlet woman, very feisty, very outspoken, quite vicious actually, particularly towards Elizabeth's half-sister Mary. But actually she was also a very affectionate, very doting mother to Elizabeth right up until her last breath. The fact that she gave such a, a meek, um, final speech from the scaffold, you know, praising the king, not criticizing her fate in any way. That was all for Elizabeth's sake because she wanted Henry to look after their daughter. She didn't want to antagonize him uh, any more than she had already. And so she was thinking only of Elizabeth in her final moments. Mm, yeah, it's, it's really moving and really touching. Um, mm. So just to come back to the checkers ring quickly, um, mm. do we know? how Elizabeth came to own this ring? Was it something that she commissioned herself or was it something that she was perhaps given? It's so frustrating because we don't um, we don't know. Um, I like to think she commissioned it, but perhaps it was one of her closest favourites. There is a theory that it was, um, you know, somebody like Robert Dudley who knew the Queen best, who knew what she really felt towards her mother. And they knew that in commissioning this ring, it would be a sure path to favour with Elizabeth. In fact, 
um, you didn't have to be that close to Elizabeth really to know that that was a path to favour. Um, anybody uh, with enough contact with the Queen knew that they would win favour uh, by, uh, you know, being complimentary towards Anne Boleyn, and Elizabeth. You know, once uh, lambasted uh, the French king uh, for failing to stamp out a quite an incendiary publication against Anne Boleyn. So, you know, it was pretty obvious in a way uh, if you looked for it how she felt. Um, but the exact provenance of the ring, uh, by whom it was commissioned, I'm afraid that has been lost to us over the centuries. What a shame! If only we knew. I know. <laughs> Isn't often the way with history. Um, There are some frustrating gaps in our knowledge, but I suppose, you know, that's also why we keep going with it because just that enticing prospect of discovering something. That's so true. So true. Uh, Now, you've already briefly touched on this, but Elizabeth really loved male company and we know she had numerous male admirers. So can you tell us a bit about some of her male favourites? She certainly did uh, love to surround herself by a whole coterie of male admirers. She loved to be the queen bee, the most desirable bride in Europe. And for at least the first um, 20 years of her reign, she kind of justified that. And then, of course, perhaps they kept the pretense going as she aged. But I think this is something Elizabeth very much got from her mother. Anne Boleyn loved to flirt. She loved uh, compliments from her male admirers. Admirers, and of course, that landed her in hot water ultimately because it was twisted into a case for adultery. But Elizabeth was the same. Now, she might um, have uh, sort of withheld from marriage, but one thing she wasn't going to deprive herself of was male company. And uh, she loved, of course, Robert Dudley. I do believe she she genuinely loved him. I don't think it was a physical relationship, but it was a real meeting of hearts and minds between her and Robert Dudley. And he was very adept at flattering her. Theirs was a 50-year relationship, so he got very good at it over the years. Um, But there were others because men soon realised that it was a great path to advancement if you flattered the Queen, and the Queen was a real sucker for it. Um, She absolutely loved it. And so there were many, many others over the years, Christopher Hatton, um, Sir Walter Raleigh, and probably one of her last great favourites was Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, who was more than 30 years younger than Elizabeth, but he paid court to her like he was a sort of lovesick uh, courtier and uh, he couldn't get enough of her company. And Elizabeth seemed to, anyway, fall for it hook, line and sinker. Surely these professions of adoration, they, they can't have been genuine given the age difference, can they? Or were they? No, well, it's certainly not in Essex's uh, case because um, there was a notorious incident when uh, Essex, who was a very cocky kind of overconfident man, he decided that he was literally going to overstep the mark uh, when it came to court etiquette because nobody but the Queen's most intimate ladies uh, was permitted into the royal bedchamber uh, to see her stripped of her adornments, her her makeup, her wigs, her clothes and jewels. But Essex decided to spring a surprise on the Queen early one morning and just burst into her bedchamber before she was up and dressed. Well, it badly backfired because he saw her 
and at first didn't recognize her. He burst into the bedchamber and there's this, what he thought was a little old lady sitting on the bed. Now she had hardly any hair. Her, her skin was deeply wrinkled without the, uh, the thick white paste that she regularly wore. And she was stripped of her other adornments her so-called mask of youth. Now, the look of horror on his face could not be disguised, and Elizabeth was equally horrified and ordered him at once from her presence. And Essex, being the sort of man he was, went at once to find his friends, and he scoffed at the crooked carcass of the Queen, as he referred to her. So I think that's really the sort of man Essex was, and, and all the pretense was gone when he was laughing with his friends in private. He was just in it for himself, for what he could get. And he capitalised on the Queen's weakness for flattery. And I think her desire for flattery had a very desperate edge towards the end of her life because she knew really, even though she refused to ever look in a mirror uh, right up until the end, she knew really that her charms were fading, um, but she still needed that affirmation and and Essex, Robert Devereux, gave it to her in spades. Yeah, absolutely. But not a very sympathetic character at all, I don't think. Oh, not at all. He's really hard to like. He's very arrogant. I get the feeling, I don't know if you agree, he's a, sort of a bit of a mummy's boy, probably a bit yeah. indulged. Um, <laughs> nobody is uh, is ever good enough for him. Um, yeah. He really gives that impression. Yeah, absolutely. But let's now think about what happened when he fell into trouble towards the end of his life. And this is where the so-called Essex ring comes into mm. play. So the ring is now in Westminster Abbey. Uh, but can you tell us a bit about what the story behind it is? Yes. So it's, I think, one of the most fascinating stories uh, in Tudor history. So according to this story, uh, at the height of his favour, the Queen had given him, uh, given the Earl of Essex, a ring uh, as a token of, of their mutual devotion. And it was understood between them that if ever he fell from favour or somebody conspired against him, all he had to do was send Elizabeth this ring and she would know to forgive him. Well, Essex uh, had very foolishly and recklessly rebelled against the Queen in 1601, although he always claimed that this rebellion was against her regime, not against the Queen herself. But really, he was just desperate to get more power uh, than she was willing to give him. So he rebelled. It was one of the worst planned rebellions in history. They actually, I love this fact, they sort of stopped for lunch halfway through the rebellion, which I always think is amazing. Very um, laid needless, back. <laughs> very laid back. You know, they had their priorities right. But um Anyway, the rebellion, uh, needless to say, failed. It was quickly uh, quashed. So the story goes uh, that after Essex had been imprisoned in the tower, he soon put that ring to the test. So he, from his window in what's now called the Deverer Tower, he dropped the ring into the hands of a serving boy and told him to take it straight to uh, Lady Philadelphia uh, Scroop, or Scroop, who was his chief ally in the Queen's Privy Chamber. But then there was a fatal case of mistaken identity because the boy instead presented the ring to Lady Scroop's sister, Catherine Howard, whom she closely resembled. Well, Catherine Howard, uh, not 
Queen Catherine Howard, but Catherine Howard, who served in Elizabeth's chamber, was a mortal enemy of Essex. So, of course, she made very sure that the ring would get nowhere near Elizabeth. So, thus receiving no sign of Essex's uh, continuing devotion to her, the Queen duly ordered his execution. Well, it was only on Catherine Howard's deathbed that she confessed everything to Elizabeth. She told her she had withheld this this ring, this symbol of Essex's devotion, uh, with the consequence that, of course, Elizabeth had ordered his execution, thinking that he no longer cared for her. Well, Elizabeth, according to this story, was absolutely furious uh, with Lady Howard. She never forgave her. And in fact, she never forgave herself for Essex's execution. It's a great story. Um, (laughs) How true it is, we we don't know. I mean, it was repeated by some of the court gossips. I, I think it's a really beguiling story. I'd love to think it was true, actually. But I also think... You know, Essex got his just desserts. I don't think Elizabeth need have felt too guilty about it at all. No, I completely agree. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you next was, I, I mean, it's a gripping story. And hmm. I was I was trying to work out of my own mind whether or not you thought that there was any truth behind this. But I mean, I, yeah, it's dramatic. Hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I can't help wondering if Elizabeth would really have been able to forgive him if she had receive the ring or not um but yeah I'm with you on that I'm with you because I think as I said earlier that Elizabeth was a great pragmatist um and no matter her personal feelings she always uh put what she believed was the good of her kingdom first now the fact she she'd executed Mary Queen of Scots an anointed queen Mm. uh on suspicion or really on proof of uh plotting a rebellion against her. Now, the Earl of Essex, there was no doubt of his guilt. He had, in full public view, launched a rebellion against the Queen. That was literally unforgivable. Uh, She would have invited other potential rebels to do the same if she'd forgiven him, if she'd had him released from the Tower. She knew there was only one course of action. I think regardless of the ring, um, she could only have ordered Essex's execution. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard to say that he didn't deserve it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I just, like you, I can't find anything to like in Essex, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> um, interestingly, there's another legend relating to a ring at the end of Elizabeth's life, isn't there? There is indeed. So um, it's said, and it's that Lady Scroop again who is involved, um, it's said that as Elizabeth breathed her last, um, Lady Scroop, one of her attendants, um, prized the ring from her finger and opened the window of the bedchamber and dropped that ring, which was said to be a sapphire ring, uh, to her brother, Sir Robert Carey, who was waiting below. Well, that ring um, had been given to um, Elizabeth by James VI, King of Scots and Elizabeth's most likely successor, uh, who'd instructed uh, that it be sent to him as a sign that the Queen was dead and that he was therefore the new King of England. Uh, And so Sir Robert Carey apparently rode with all speed north uh, to give the ring to James and James knew that he had at last inherited uh, the throne that was never firm 
family promised to him by Elizabeth, but that everybody knew really he had to inherit someday. That's the story. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's slightly more believable, or probably a lot more believable, really, than the Essex one. Um, and certainly we know that Robert Carey went to great lengths to, to curry favour with James and was one of the first to ride north uh, with the news. So I, I think this is actually quite a credible story. I think, yeah, I agree with you. And it's a really fascinating story. And mm. I think that it, what's really interesting um, in talking to you today and hearing about the Checkers ring and the Essex ring and finally this Sapphire ring is that it shows how rings could be used in so many different ways mm. and could serve so many purposes. So it really has been fascinating to hear about their use in these scenarios relating to the famous Tudor Queen Elizabeth. And you're so right in that these small pieces of jewellery could symbolise so much in this age where they didn't have, you know, Twitter and email and other means of communication. And, And so symbolic objects really did carry huge significance. Yeah, they really did. Now, very finally, and I won't give anything away because I want people to go out and buy it, uh, (laughs) of course. Thank you. (laughs) But your new fiction book, The Fallen Angel, which I have to say is spectacular and very, very highly and warmly recommended. Uh, But that also contains a thread about jewels within the storyline, doesn't it? Yes, um, it does. Indeed, I do love a good jewel uh, in any story. So um, thank you so much for the recommendation. You've been really supportive of this book. Um, And so um, The Fallen Angel uh, is uh, the last uh, in my fiction trilogy. And it it centres on Francis Gorges, who is um, a herbalist, um, and uh, she finds herself in jeopardy in James the First Court because herbalism was synonymous with witchcraft, and James, of course, was the number one royal witch hunter in history. So I've sort of followed her story from the gunpowder plot all the way through to, in this book, the death of uh, James the First. Well, the jewels that really are at the centre of the plot are Queen Anne of Denmark's jewels. Um, she was course, James I's wife. Um, And even though she died with virtually nothing because the king had restricted her income, what she did keep back were her jewels and they were worth a king's ransom. And so the plot involves these jewels uh, being stolen. And because they are worth so much, they could literally change the course of English history. And so everybody is intent uh, upon getting their hands on these jewels, not least uh, the complete villain of the novel who is uh, the Duke of Buckingham. So yes, jewels are central, uh, I think, to the plot. So what a lovely way to end. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. And all I will say is that it really is a cracking read and you should all go out and buy it and all of Tracy's other books immediately. (laughs) (laughs) So much, that's really kind. Um, And are you able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment? 
Yes. And in fact, royal jewels do figure quite prominently because I am working, I'm on a nonfiction book now, which is the history of the monarchy uh, in Britain. But that has been really fascinating. So it's a thousand years really of royal history and looking not just at the personalities, although they are front and center, but also the trappings of royalty, the the crown jewels, of course, um, the clothes, the palaces, the ceremonies, everything that makes a royal royal. And uh, it's been a really fascinating journey through. I have to say, as we speak, I am writing about Edward VII. So I'm into the 20th century. I'm I'm nearing the finishing line. Um, And in a sort of way, the more modern the monarch, the harder the research, because so much of it is just based on hearsay and media reports, as opposed to uh, the very considerate Tudors, for example, who left us lots of letters and and signed papers by the monarch. It's not quite the same for the modern royals. But yes, uh, jewels and bling are definitely part of it. Just one final thing then, Tracy, which is for those listeners who'd like to find out more about you and your books, where can they find you? So thank you. Yes, I have a website, which is tracyborman.co.uk. And that lists um, all my books, gives some details on my books. And um, it also uh, has an events page. Obviously, it's been a bit of a shorter events page this year, uh, 2020. But um, hopefully things will soon be back up and running again. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tracy. And once again, huge congratulations on the release of The Fallen Angel, which is available in all good bookshops, especially online, right now. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. And if you're interested in seeing any images of either the Checkers Ring or the Essex Ring, do check out our social media pages at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram, where we'll be posting images of them today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Tune in next week for another amazing History Gem. 